0: My college roommate, Jessica, often says how true to type we all stay, and by type, I should clarify here, she means stereotype. It used to annoy me a great deal when she said it, but in the decades that she has been repeating that, she has not been wrong. Not about herself, and certainly not about me. I was reminded of that again when I first heard the personal conversion story told by the Reverend Dr. Fred Muir, Minister Emeritus of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Annapolis. He originally recounted it at a 2012 Barry Street lecture that later formed the basis of his 2016 collection titled Turning Point, Essays on a New Unitarian Universalism. There, he talks about a class on American transcendentalism he attended during the spring term of his junior year when they discussed Ralph Waldo Emerson's famous Divinity School address. Nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of your own mind, the Sage of Concord declared. Absolve you to yourself, and you shall have the suffrage of the world. Hearing his proclamations, Reverend Muir decided that he must be the same religion that Emerson was. My conversion story is only a slightly modified version of his. I, too, was taking a class in American Transcendentalism, only it was in the fall term of my senior year. I'm not sure that Emerson alone could have convinced me to become a Unitarian Universalist. It was as much the company he kept and conquered and its environs that gave me a glimpse of the potential that such transcendent thought held for everyone, myself and my contemporaries included. I read these writers' collected works as if they were sacred texts, and they still sit on my bookshelves in a place of pride today. While I look to them for inspiration, I now do so much less often than I did in earlier years. Eventually, Reverend Muir wrote, he realized that soaring Emersonian insight that brought him into Unitarian Universalism could never have kept him in a UU congregation or in its ministry or even in the faith tradition. It seemed too individualistic to keep anyone in a spiritual community, and indeed that proved to be the case for Emerson himself who in 1832 left his church pulpit for the public lecture circuit. According to Reverend Muir, Emerson actually provides us with a primary error in what he counts as a series of three errors. In turning point, he writes that our religious past is replete with errors shaped by individualism, exceptionalism, and a posture of anti-authoritarianism. These errors have become barriers, preventing us from embracing our future, Reverend Muir concludes, and moving confidently ahead into the 21st century. He terms these legacies our trinity of errors, which is unusual terminology for any Unitarian to use. It suggests, though, that there is a serious religious damage done by the dynamic interplay of individualism, exceptionalism, and anti-authoritarianism in our congregation. Reverend Muir contrasts individuality, something most of us here in the sanctuary today would certainly prize as a virtue, with individualism, which makes each of us the reference point of all relevance and the final arbiter of all value. The most individualistic among us will ask, how does Unitarian Universalism meet my own needs, advance my particular aims, confirm my unique sense of self, bring me personal satisfaction? Exceptionalism similarly centers us as a special set of individuals with a privileged vantage. We know things that others cannot in ways others cannot, with a surety that they can never grasp. It presumes that we know ourselves exceptionally well, which usually we do not, and that we know others better than they know themselves, that we comprehend their motivations and intentions, and also their blind spots on spiritual concerns, social issues, and political matters, too. What could the uninitiated inners have to teach or offer us? According to Reverend Muir, such a mindset not only suggests that we are a small assembly, it actually keeps us small. Our anti-authoritarianism is a clear consequence of individualism and exceptionalism combined because Who possibly could tell us what to do, given who we are and what we know? Whatever positions certain persons might occupy or whatever responsibilities they might hold in our communities, even if we have assigned them one or both, is almost irrelevant. Our job, somehow, is to remain vigilant against any mistakes on their part. When Reverend Muir considers our collective prospects, he thinks that they will be improved to the extent that we can all wholeheartedly embrace what he terms the Trinity of Promises, another threesome. He encourages us to envision a future to be constructed with the promises shaped by our theology and history, the promises of generosity, pluralism, and imagination. These promises, as promises often are, are a future waiting to be lived and loved, he reminds us. But they also have a precedent. And his decades of ministry, and in his decades of ministry, Reverend Muir saw various congregations and very many congregants embody all these three things. In congregational life at its finest, he says. We routinely demonstrate generosity of spirit, understanding that there are enough resources for us to undertake several shared projects simultaneously, spiritual development alongside social action, for instance, or a music program alongside theme-based ministries. We become pluralistic by intentionally welcoming people very much unlike us, not just unlike us in demographic terms, but unlike us in temperamental respects as well. We can begin to imagine newer alternative ways of being together in community with their help, even if these ways are not our own inventions, and instead of finding them threatening, we can find them exciting. How often have I heard from those I serve in my own congregation, but others too, that we spend too much time and money on ourselves. We need to get out into the community and do more. Yes, I am sure that we need to do more, Reverend Muir writes. But I am convinced that we focus on reforming the world because the work of shaping and modeling our congregations as beloved communities is harder. It means addressing our own particular challenges. It means rejecting the trinity of errors that he enumerates and upholding the trinity of promises that he identifies so that we might all be as one, unified in our spiritual and religious purposes. Today is Halloween, a day when we can name our fears openly and communally and even be playful about some of the power we have given them. What feels so unsettling to us about changing some of our most stubborn habits and perhaps our worst patterns. According to Reverend Muir, we cannot do both covenant and individualism. Individuality, yes, but not individualism. Articulating and living our UU principles as a commitment to covenant, creating and sustaining a community by promising to one another our mutual trust and support. This takes extra effort," he concludes. Yet, it is effort worth our expending. It is an intention we ought to set for ourselves. As Reverend Muir suggests, we are reaching a turning point in the 21st century, and the choices we make now may prove decisive ones for us as individual UUs, but also for the 1,000 or so congregations that gather us. Last month, I announced that the Unitarian Universalist Association had formed a study commission to revise the principles and purposes that the UUA spelled out more than 25 years ago. This announcement was informed by a shared desire to more clearly communicate our covenant with one another, centering our theological perspectives and our core values alike. An earlier study had found that we, UUs, quote, ranked loving as an instrumental value and mature love as a terminal value more highly than did respondents from other groups, religious and non-religious, end quote. And the UUA Board of Trustees asked the study commission to keep these facts in mind. The new principles and purposes should guide us in the transformation of ourselves, our communities, and our faith into active networks of collective care. They should ask us to choose love and action as the path forward, the trustees insisted. They encouraged the commission to revise, replace, or restructure them as needed to meet the objectives stated above and added, there is nothing sacred about the number principles or sources, nor their specific wordings. Each year at UU Wellesley Hills, I have preached a sermon series throughout the church program year. My first year, I preached about the, David, the Reverend David O. Rankin's ten UU beliefs. Then I preached about our six spiritual sources. Last year, I preached about the Reverend James Luther Adams' five smooth stones of liberal religion, and in this, my fourth and final year with you, I intended to preach on the seven UU principles. Never mind that some UU congregations have already decided to adopt an eighth principle for themselves that explicitly names diversity and multiculturalism as things that we would covenant to affirm and promote in our spiritual communities. Soon, there may be neither seven nor eight principles to count. The UUA Study Commission has been asked to get the board its proposed revisions by January 2022. The new year will be here before we know it. What then? How will we speak for and about ourselves? Who are we now? And more importantly, who are we in the process of becoming? My hope is that we will be the people who decide wisely and well for ourselves. And for those who might yet follow in this faith tradition, the people who, when confronted with an unholy trinity of errors and a holy trinity of promises, chooses to be the sort of unlikely Trinitarians that the Reverend Muir calls all us You use to be in turning point. Generous, pluralistic, imaginative types. If my undergraduate years made a Unitarian out of me, my graduate study threatened to make a Trinitarian out of me once more. At seminary, my systematic theology professor, a Methodist from Virginia who spoke with a drawl, taught us that the Trinity only served to illustrate how God existed in our world, namely in and through relationships that we cultivate with one another. If we claim to believe in one God of love, then obviously we are called to be more loving toward each other. A favorite colleague of mine once quipped, sometimes you have to change to stay the same. Sometimes you have to change in order to stay the same. She meant that on occasion and in order to stay true to our essence, We have to change the ways that we conceive of and communicate about our identity. We UUs are not the same as we were when Emerson delivered his Divinity School address in 1838. Nor are we the same as we were in 1970 when Reverend Muir first heard his professor present that address. We may not even be the same as we were in 2020 when the UUA formed its study commission. Yet, something essential remains unaltered, I suspect, across all these eras. Together, we have truths. Together, we have a story the Reverend Penny Hackett Evans pronounced. Together, we are a community. The larger American culture that the transcendentalists were tilting against in the 19th century, the repressive, conformist one, is very different than the one we inhabit in the 21st century, where we are confronted with the costs of individualism run amok. In vaccine refusal, for instance, or in revisionist history, or in climate change denial. So, the stance that we took then might not suit circumstances today. At the 2022 General Assembly, UU Wellesley-Hills and other member congregations will be asked to vote on the proposed revisions that the Study Commission drafted to our UUA principles and purposes. Everyone here will be asked to trust that the congregational delegates appointed by your Board of Trustees will vote wisely and participate well in spirited debate and decision-making. I believe that they will, and I do not yet know who they are. But I trust those given the authority to make these selections, to do the job to the best of their considerable abilities, keeping the good of the whole in mind, keeping only their best intentions at heart. My college roommate, much later, became one of the bridesmaids at my wedding. And while there may be some controversies on this point, I contend that she gave the very finest toast of the entire evening. She commented on what an unlikely pair my husband and I were, and I think that the nearly 200 guests that Ben and I invited were in complete agreement because we saw them all nodding from where we sat on the dais. Then Jessica noted what unlikely friends she and I were and had been for decades, just at a glance. She was tall and tomboyish. I was small and girly. She was raised in the Midwest. I was a child of the Northeast. She was athletic and outdoorsy while I was a bookish creature of comfort. She ate a wholesome diet while I had a sweet tooth. She had a commitment to Eastern traditions while I was steeped in Western religions. She is Germanic, while I am Celtic. She is precise, measured, and exacting, while I am intuitive, quick-witted, and impressionistic. The list went on and on, and once more, Jessica was right about everything, to my considerable annoyance. And she and I remained tiresomely true to our type although I think we have each helped one another to evolve into the highest expression of those types. Jessica concluded that when so many superficial differences present themselves in a pair, there must be a far deeper connection that proves itself durable, a surer bond that outwits even those that it holds together. I like to think of Unitarian Universalism in much the same manner as a marriage of two distinct spiritual traditions that now has only love at its core, love as its main point for being. After all, don't we always say that love is the spirit of this church? What that love points us toward remains to be revealed but we can trust that more will be revealed in time.